All right, Genesis chapter 44 this morning. Genesis chapter 44. We get very close to, to wrapping up the, the charad uh, today. Not, not quite there, but we're, we're, we're pretty darn close to it right now. Uh, Genesis chapter 44, we, we continue with the, looking at the interactions between uh, Joseph and his, and his brothers. Um, of all the interactions that, that take place, this is probably the one that makes me the most squeamish. Um, the others are, are, are difficult, uh, but this one, uh, this one makes me cringe in, in, in so many different ways as we watch uh, how Joseph continues to, to engineer these, these circumstances around. Uh, as we've been looking at the past few chapters, we've noted that there's, there's three main themes that we're, we're still continuing to look at as we look at these chapters. Uh, and they are just, again, for, for a reminder, they're reconciliation, providence, and promise. Uh, reconciliation is the one that we will hit hardest uh, to most today. Uh, as, we, as we look at, at what is going on, uh, we get a very clear sense of what is starting to go on in the brother's heart. Uh, we won't get to the, to the final end of that until next week when, when Joseph makes his, his big reveal. But, uh, but we start to understand, at least on one side, uh, where the brothers are coming to. Uh, we continue to deal with, with providence, and we get a brush with that a little bit here this morning. As, as you, it's clear that, that Joseph is still intending on, on providing for his brothers, uh, but yet that promise yet remains out there. Uh, Joseph is, is waiting for a time when all of that family is together, uh, when everyone is, is bowing down before him. There is, a, there is promise that, is, that we are still waiting for, and that takes a couple more chapters yet to see on that as well. So we have a lot still going on in this chapter and a lot that is that has taken place. As we look in chapter 44, uh, not only do we see uh, Joseph and, and his, uh, the way that he is engineering uh, much of what is going on in this chapter, uh, but we get a much stronger sense of Judah's role. Uh, we, start to, we started to see last chapter in, in chapter 43 uh, that Judah is the one that is really stepping up. Uh, Reuben would be the logical leader in this situation. Reuben, Reuben tries to lead in, in some ways at, at various points in time, but, but always seems to fall down flat. Uh, last week we saw that, that Judah really is the one who has taken the lead. He is the one that's convincing his father, uh, you've got to send us down to Egypt. If you don't do this, we are going to die. Uh, Judah is the one who is willing to offer up himself as surety uh, for Benjamin's uh, safe, uh, safe arrival, uh, a, 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 uh, a promise that is going to be sorely tested uh, here this morning. So, so Judah is, is the one that begins to take a lead. And as we look in, in, in much of uh, verses 18 all the way down to 34 here in this chapter, uh, Judah is the speaker. Uh, Judah is the one who becomes the spokesman uh, for these brothers um, as, they, as they interact with, with Joseph and, and try, to, try to work their way through the situation. As far as Joseph is concerned, Joseph has really two main questions, and these probably questions that have been probably in his top of his mind since he has seen his brothers the first time. Uh, number one is, has his brothers changed any? Have they changed at all? Uh, you, you have to think that, that Joseph is still, <laughs> has in his mind very fresh what happened to him when he was 17 years old. Right, everything that, that is true about Joseph's life at this point in time, uh, the amount of time that he has spent down in Egypt, the fact that he is in Egypt, the fact that he is now uh, second to, to Pharaoh, all of this has happened because of what the brothers have done to him. That, is, that, was a, that was a pivotal moment in his life. That was a landmark moment in his life. Everything changed on that day. But has his brother changed, have his brothers changed at all? Right? Has, has something happened there? And can he trust them? Can he trust them? 
right? That, that's a relationship that has been broken. That's a relationship that has been smashed into pieces. How do you regain trust at that level, right? Surely you and I, we've all had experiences in our life where we've had relationships that are suddenly strained. We've had relationships that have changed at, at, a, at the drop of a hat because you realize, I cannot trust this person. Right? This, this situation, they, they cannot be trusted in. And it's hard to go back to put those pieces back together. Right? Uh, trust is, is slowly gained and very quickly lost. And here Joseph stands at that precipice, and the question remains, can I trust these brothers? Uh, 44 answers a lot of those questions, I think, for Joseph. Uh, are they completely trustworthy? I don't think Joseph really feels that way. But, but there, is, there is a point at which Joseph is, is, is able to, to, to come to some terms with some of these questions. Before we jump here in, in verse uh, 1 here, let me, let me start with a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, I thank you uh, for, for the way that the worship service has, has, has gone today. Uh, Father, as we've spent our time thinking and, and, and praising uh, you for who you are, uh, for what you have done, uh, Father, and, and, and for the acts that you, that you do. Uh, Father, you are a glorious God. Uh, Father, and, and much of what has taken place in these chapters, much of what continues to take place throughout the rest of this book, uh, Father, only, only point and only uh, underline that, that point uh, more and more. Father, we see your, your power. Uh, we see your grace being uh, given out. Uh, we see mercy uh, that is being extended to, to individuals who do not deserve it, Father, in any way. Uh, we see providence. Uh, we see your sovereignty being exercised, Father, uh, in circumstances that are, uh, that are wild, circumstances that are beyond the control of a single individual, and, and yet your, your hand is, is ever-present, guiding, leading, and moving as you see fit. Father, that gives us a great comfort. Uh, Father, that gives us a great, great calm in the middle of our own trials, in the middle of our own circumstances that, that seem wild, uh, that, that, are, that are unknowable, where we can't possibly begin to, to guess what comes next. Uh, Father, we can take comfort. We can, uh, we can, we can rest in you, uh, knowing that you are the one who is in charge, knowing that you are the one who knows everything that has taken place, knowing that there is nothing that is impossible for you to accomplish. And so I thank you for that. Now, Father, I thank you for these, uh, these, the, the, this story uh, that, is, that is unfolding before us as we, as we watch Joseph and his brothers. Uh, Father, there are, there are a lot of touchstones that we can relate to. Uh, we can relate to the, the broken relationships. Uh, we can relate to the, to the fear. Uh, we can relate to, to suffering at various levels. We can relate to, to, to family strain that is occurring. Uh, Father, and to be able to see that you are a God who is able to work in and through those situations brings us a lot of hope. So, Father, I pray that as we, as we look at these stories, as we contemplate what is going on and, and even why people are doing what they're doing, uh, Father, I pray that we never fail to see that strong hand of, of sovereignty and providence that is behind this whole story. So give us, give us grace for this this morning. Give me clarity of, of words and clarity of thought. Uh, and, Father, I pray that you are, you are glorified as we think through this. Just then I pray. Amen. All right, verses 1 through 5, as we, as we jump in here this morning, uh, we have the, the setup, the, the setup here. Now, let me read here in chapter 44, verse 1. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. And as soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city, were not far off, when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not, the one from, is, not this, uh, is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and which he has indeed uses uh, for divination? 
you have done wrong in doing this. Uh, this is a, a classic textbook setup. You could not ask for anything better. This would be lovely in any movie that you could possibly show to me. I would love to watch this take place. Uh, but I would be horrified to be the one to whom this is taking place. Right? This, is, uh, this, this, is, this is what makes me so terribly squeamish about much of the interactions with Joseph. Is, is, can you imagine doing this? Can you imagine doing this to someone? Now, now, there's a part of me that says to these brothers, yeah, you might deserve that a little bit. Uh, but, but still, to actually carry that out, can you, could you recommend this as a way of reconciling a broken relationship? I don't think so. <laughs> right? this, is, this is tough. This is hard to work through. Uh, and it's interesting what, what Joseph is, is doing here. You remember that the night before had been quite a, quite a time. Okay, uh, when you look back there at the end of, of verse 34, so they feasted and drank freely with him. They had a good time. Okay, they had a great time uh, the night before. Uh, and this is almost as if they are, they are dealing with the consequences of this great time as, as, as the rest of the day begin, uh, continues to unfold. Uh, Joseph gives his stewards instruction early in the morning uh, that it really resembles much of a, a repeat of what we saw earlier. Right, First time that the brothers came down to Egypt, remember they, they, they get the food and after they've been interrogated and after Simeon has been bound before him, he instructs someone to, to put all their money back in the mouths of their sacks, right? And here, uh, we see that the steward is, is basically going to be instructed to do the exact same thing again, right? I want you to fill up their food, uh, fill up their, their sacks with as much food as they could possibly carry, and put the money back in there again. This is a, this is a familiar playbook for what Joseph has, has asked them to do. Again, I see this as being a providential act on Joseph's part. Uh, for one, he is giving them as much grain as they could possibly carry. Right? This is, it is clear for, to me that, that his intention is to make sure that that family stays alive. He has a vested interest in this family staying alive. He wants that to take place. And again, if you put all of their money back in their sacks, what do they have? They have free food. Right? And I see this being very clearly Joseph's desire to, to providentially care uh, for this family. And by extension, this is God's providential care for this family. Don't forget that one of the chief crises that is going on is not just the crisis that is taking place between Joseph and his brothers here, but it's a crisis of a question of what happens to that family sitting in Canaan. Right? Will God's promises to that family that I will make you a great nation, will those be carried out? Or will that family simply die out of, 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 of famine in the land of Canaan? Right? This, is, this is Joseph's care for his family, but this is also God's care for his family. Right? To make sure that this, uh, this family stays alive. There is, there is something that is providential about what has taken place. But then we go beyond the normal playbook and we put a, we put a twist in there, don't we? Uh, you'll notice what else uh, uh, the steward is commanded to do. Um, verse 2, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. Uh, the twist here is not just that we're going to give you all a lot of food. That happened before. It's not just that we're going to give you all the money back in your sack. But I want you to take my cup, my personal silver cup, and I want you to put it in the mouth of the sack of the youngest one there. Okay? This is, this is the setup. Benjamin is the one who is being set up for this fall. Right? Not, that, not the brothers as a whole, but Benjamin particularly is the one that Joseph is trying to set up as someone who is going to be targeted. 
Benjamin is going to be the vulnerable one. Benjamin is going to be the one who's going to have to have the, the suspicion laid upon him and the guilt laid upon him. And Joseph is engineering this. The brothers would reasonably probably know what this cup looks like because they, they feasted with him the night before. Right, and so there's a, there's a, there's probably the the sense that this is the uh, this is the motive, right? This is the opportunity as you're as you're working through your classic drama, right? And you want to know the who, the what, and the why, and the how, right? This is this is kind of what Joseph is concocting here, right? You have seen what my cup looks like. You've had opportunity to get at my cup. You've been in my house. It appears, um, verse three. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away. It appears that it's possible that they spent the night there at Joseph's house. They were his, his guests not only in, in the feasting, but they were guests in his residence as well. You have opportunity, right? It, it, you, you would know what my cup looks like. You would understand the value of my cup, and you're, you're in situations where you have the opportunity to get at this cup, right? And so the insinuation is going to be that, that Benjamin is a thief, Benjamin is a thief. And this has been a recurring theme that Joseph has put his brothers into. When they left the first time, when they left with their money and their sacks, they look like thieves. Again, now he paints them all as thieves by putting money in all of their sacks again. But now Benjamin is the worst thief of all, right? Because not only does he have his money in, in his sack still, but he has taken the Lord of Egypt's cup, right? This is, a, this is an awful idea, right? Uh, but this is, what, this is what Joseph goes on to. Uh, he sends them on their way, uh, verse, verse 3. And then in verse 4, he puts everything in motion, right? Not only have we engineered what this situation is going to look like, not only have we engineered the guilt uh, that is going to be assigned to each of these members of the party, uh, but we're going to make sure that we, we're going to make sure that we catch them too. He tells the steward in verse 4, uh, go up after him, follow him, right? And start to work through this situation here. You'll notice that he's very specific uh, in verse 5 um, in terms of, of what he wants. Is not the one from whom my Lord, is not this the one from whom my Lord drinks and from which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. The focus that, that Joseph is going to have is going to be on this cup. It's as if he, he's already put the money in the sacks. We, we know that that's present. But what he wants to make a big deal about is the cup. Okay, so everyone is, a, everyone is a thief. Everyone looks like a thief. But Benjamin is the one that we want to focus on. The, the cup is the major transgression here. The, the cup is, is, is too personal. Right? It, is, it is Joseph's cup particularly. So there is, a, there is prestige that is associated with it. There is doubtless value that is associated with it. And it's one that he uses for divination. We'll deal with that here in a minute. But, uh, but this, is, this is a cup that is valuable to him and symbolic for him. Right? So this, this cup is going to be everything. And so this tells us what the, what the steward is going to be looking at and where he's going to be uh, placing all of his, his emphasis on here. It's, it's going to be this cup. And accordingly, then, it's going to be Benjamin, who is the one who, who has this cup in his possession. Uh, verses 6 down through um, verse 17, uh, we see the, the crisis. So the setup is in verses 1 through 5. The crisis is in 6 down to verse 17. Verse 6, the steward catches them. They weren't that far away, right? They're, they're barely out of the city in verse 4. So verse 6, he overtakes them very quickly and spoke these words to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money which we have found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from my Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die 
and we will also be my Lord's slaves. So he said, now let it be also according to your words, he with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then they hurried, each one lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the old, oldest and ending with the youngest, and the, cap was, and, the, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, as he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him, Joseph said to them, what is, this that, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me to do this. The cup in whose possession the cup has been found, the man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up and in peace to your father. Uh, the steward is in hot pursuit. They are, they are barely out of the city. The steward comes up and, and accuses them with everything that Joseph has told them to do. You notice there in, in verse 6, thankfully, he doesn't repeat everything again that Joseph has just said. We get a lot of repetition in these last two chapters. So thankfully, we get one spot where we're not repeating everything verbatim. Right? But, so the steward goes up, catches these men, tells them, what, why are you stealing this guy's cup? Right? This, is, this is a very dumb move that you have made. You, you shouldn't be stealing Joseph's cup, but you've stolen Joseph's cup. Uh, verse 7, these men are, are absolutely indignant, and they're confident too. Did they steal anything? No. Did they ever go in with any intention of stealing anything? No. These guys are absolutely innocent, but they don't look innocent. Right, And so they end up getting overly confident and they end up getting themselves in a situation that they couldn't possibly have understood what was getting ready to take place. They point back in verse 7 to their prior conduct and say there's no possible way that you could even think that we would do this to you. Because the last time that we got in this situation, we even came back with extra money the next time that we came down to prove to you that we didn't steal anything at all. So, so if we are willing to, to come back the second time with extra money in our hands just to clear our name, why would we, why would we get dirty? Why would we get involved in something like this now? It makes, it makes absolutely no sense. And, and they've had enough interactions with the steward that in their minds, this, this makes sense. There's, there's no possible way that you could accuse us of this. Then in verse 9, they, uh, they make a proposition that is, that is uh, absolutely awful, right? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Again, they're pretty confident in what's going on here. They didn't go in to steal this. They didn't steal this thing. In their mind, they can make this kind of a proclamation. They can make this kind of a promise because they know themselves to be absolutely innocent. But they're not going to look innocent, right? Because Joseph has had his hand in, in what is taking place here. Um, so they, they, they condemned essentially Benjamin to, to death there in verse 9 and themselves into, into servitude. You'll notice that the steward there kind of plays dumb a, a little bit. So he said, now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it, it, it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you will be innocent. You notice that in verse 10, now let it also be according to your words. Is that what they said? 
That's not what they said at all. It's hard to exactly understand exactly what the steward is, is, is getting at here. Uh, there, there's two possibilities. One is that there is some evidence that suggests that in Egypt at this point in time, uh, there is some sort of a legal precedent for the guilty to be able to set their own punishment at a certain level. Now, it's kind of a, a bargaining that would have to take place, but, but you could enter in your own punishment as part of the legal proceedings, and it would be binding. In which case, the steward knows that what they are getting ready to propose, if it's legally binding, which is what Joseph's about to make it do, would absolutely condemn Benjamin to death. And the steward is basically saying, mm, you don't want to go there, <laughs> right? Because the steward knows what he has done to Benjamin's back, right? He knows what's there. Benjamin is sure to die. Uh, the other possibility is that the steward is just so dedicated to what Joseph wants done, as a good steward should do, that he is simply kind of ignoring, really what they say really is unimportant at this point. Uh, he is simply so concerned that, that, Jude, that Joseph gets uh, the outcome that he wants that he just kind of bends and twists the situation to his own needs to make sure that it looks the way Joseph wanted to look, not the way these guys want it to look. So which of the two it is, I don't know. Uh, but but the, the steward is very clearly guiding the situation and moving the situation uh, to accomplish what, what Joseph wants. Uh, whether it's because he thinks there's a, there's a legal danger that these guys don't know about, or whether it's simply this is his responsibility and this is what he wants to, to do. Uh, the steward then begins to, uh, begins to do the search, right? Uh, we have an accusation of theft. We need to find out who it is uh, because this person who's going to have to bear the, the consequences for that. Uh, you'll notice that they all hurry, verse 11, they hurry to the ground, right? They're not trying to delay. They're, they're, they're convinced they're innocent. They're convinced that none of them have, have done this thing. The steward, again, in verse 12, uh, moves with, uh, with remarkable uh, accuracy and from oldest to youngest, right? Remember last, uh, last week in chapter 43, this came up again as Joseph seats these men around the table, oldest to youngest, and they all kind of sit and wonder. Uh, here again, he works oldest to youngest, and he knows exactly uh, who follows in that order. Uh, and so you have to imagine that Joseph has told him, this is what the order is, and this is the way in which I want you to proceed with this search. Uh, Joseph's, uh, Joseph's hand is all over this situation. Everything that the, the steward is doing, uh, everything that the steward is saying, every, the way that the steward is trying to, to guide the situation, the way the steward is conducting the search, it is hard to not see Joseph's hand on everything that is going on here. He is carrying out these orders uh, to, the, to the letter there. And what do we find? Verse 12. Right, as the suspense builds, as we go sack by sack, man by man, we finally make it to Benjamin, and what do we find? We find a cup. Right? This, this setup is iron, ironclad here. Right? And verse 13, their response is swift. Right? They tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. These guys are whipped. They are absolutely whipped. Uh, remember, they're, they're probably, they probably have no idea at this point how much danger they're actually in. Benjamin clearly has the cup. Benjamin, of all of them, is in the most danger. But what is it exactly that's going to happen to Benjamin? From the steward's perspective, all we want to do is make that man his slave. But what have they promised that that would happen? We're going to kill this guy. 
right? Kill this guy, and the rest of us are, are slaves as well. And I think this flavors, that understanding, the confusion on the brother's part, flavors everything else that you see, flavors much of, uh, of the, the, the conversation that, that Judah has and, and the way that he unfolds that conversation. Uh, it is because I don't think they, they are fully aware at this point, they're not fully confident of exactly how much danger they are in and how much danger Benjamin is in, right? And so they're, they're trying to navigate that, trying to, to figure out exactly uh, what is taking place here. Verse 14, uh, we notice it says, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. Uh, this, again, is, is what sets up Judah for, for much of the rest of this chapter. Uh, Judah is the one who is seemingly the most significant at this point in time. Uh, Judah begins to take the, take the lead. Before this, it's just been the brothers, the brothers, the brothers, the brothers. Verse 14, it's Judah and, and the brothers. He is, uh, he is the one that's in charge. He is the one who is taking the lead. When they come back to Joseph's house, uh, Joseph then begins to accuse them in verse 15. Right, uh, Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? Now, what exactly is, is going on here? What is, what is exactly that, that Joseph is saying? There's two possible things that Joseph could be, could be getting at here. Number one is that someone in Joseph's position would be likely to practice some sort of divination. Okay? Uh, remember that Joseph is number two in the land of Egypt. And as number two, uh, Joseph is having to make an awful lot of decisions. What do you want when you make a, a decision? You want some sort of guidance. You want some sort of indication. These are big decisions you're having to make. These are, these are important decisions that you're having to make. You, you're going to want something to lean on that says, I should do this versus I should do that. Right? And so it would make sense. It would be believable from, from the brother's perspective that someone in this position would be practicing divination, right? That's the kind of thing that they would do. I don't think it's necessarily Joseph saying he does practice divination. I think it's simply saying that this is a reasonable thing for someone in this position uh, to be doing. Uh, the divination that would be in mind here at this point, because it's involving a cup, is, is something to do with uh, mixing liquids together in some way. It's either uh, having oil in the cup and then dropping water down in there, or the reverse, where you have water and you drop oil down in there, or just mix liquids together. Uh, and if any of you have ever uh, messed with, with liquids and, and mixing them together, uh, I was thinking an awful lot of, uh, about uh, you're doing Easter eggs, right? You have that cup of hot water, and you put a couple drops of dye in there, and you, and you watch the way that the dye just kind of floats around in there. It's interesting, right? It's kind of almost mesmerizing the way that things seem to move in the cup. Well, you're not the only one. They were mesmerized by this back in the day too, right? The only thing is they would use that as a way of determining which way we should go, right? They would, they would look at the way these things float around and say, oh, well, you should do this or you should do that. Very, very speculative, very, very iffy, but this is what they were doing. This is the kind of divination that he's talking about here, right? Something, something along this line. And it's reasonable to assume that Joseph in his position could be doing this. The second possible thing that, that uh, Joseph might be getting at here is that Joseph does practice divination or is at least saying that he does. Um, I think this is actually the more likely meaning. And, and the reason why I think that is because it contributes far more to what is going on in this story uh, than, than what we've seen already. How does Joseph know that the brothers have stolen the cup? If you practice divination, wouldn't that guide you in some capacity? 
right? Wouldn't, wouldn't that let you know who took the cup and whose, whose, whose hand you're going to find it in? And I think that's the, I think that's the point. Uh, this, is, this is Joseph really terrifying the brothers even more than he already has. Uh, not only are they dealing with the number two uh, leader in the land, or, or the Lord of the land, as they keep referring to, but they are now dealing with the Lord who seemingly knows everything. And that's the one they've chosen to anger. That's the one who's, in whose hand they have now fallen into. Right? This, is, this is not the person you want to have for your enemy. Right? You don't want to have someone who can just divine what is going on or divine what you have done or divine where you are. You don't want to be messing with that person. Right? And I think this is Joseph terrifying the brothers even more than he has already done. Everything that he has done up until this point, he has constantly put them on guard. He has constantly put them on the wrong foot. He has constantly exercised advantage over them and, and expressed his superiority over them. And I think this is just another example of that. Right? This is, you have messed with someone that can figure out these things. Why would you do that? Why would you steal that man's cup? Right? This, is, this is not the person to, uh, to, to mess with. So, uh, this is, uh, this is, uh, this is uh, I, I think, a, a move of terror on, on Joseph's behalf to let them know uh, you shouldn't have done what you have done here. Uh, Judah attempts to, to plead for mercy here. Right? And again, I think this, because, this is because the brothers are not entirely confident where they're sitting at this point in time. Judah in verse 16, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Uh, Judah is basically just, has nothing to say at this point. Like, what, what, can, what can I possibly say? If you were to look at the evidence, what does the evidence say? We're guilty, right? You came looking for a cup, a cup was missing, and who has the cup? It's Benjamin. Right? I mean, what can what can you what could you say in that situation? You could you can protest. You can uh, you can try to say, well, I didn't do it. But who has the cup? Benjamin has the cup. You really you can't really argue with the evidence at, at a certain point in time. And this is this is where Judah finds himself. What can I what can I say? So the only thing that he can do is, is really to try to try to plea down a little bit. Right, try to try to get this this the charges down where where they're a little more acceptable. Uh, end of verse sixteen. Behold, we are my lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Right, Joseph is trying to to plea out of the situation. What did they earlier say could happen? Kill the one who has the cup. Everyone else is a slave. Now, what is Benj- what is Judah trying to do? Let's, let's ignore that whole murder part. Let's, let's just go with slavery. Everyone's a slave here, right? What did the servant say was going to happen? The one who has the cup will be my slave. Everyone else goes free. What, there seems to be two things that, that Judah is trying to accomplish. Number one is trying to plea down. Right? We, need to get, we need to get death off the menu. <laughs> we, we've got to get that. That can't be an option anymore. Let's, let's go with slavery. Everyone is a slave. If everyone is a slave, does anyone have to go back and tell dad? No. <laughs> no, there's no one left to go back and tell dad at that point in time. Part of the, the thinking on Judah's part seems to simply be, if, Judah, if this is going to happen to Benjamin, none of us want to go back and tell dad about this. Right? Because what does he know? What is this going to do to Jacob? It's going to kill him. And none of these brothers want to see that. This becomes abundantly obvious as we move into verses 18 and following as, as Judah, Judah begins that speech. Judah understands very clearly what is going to take place. 
He knows what the impact of this is going to be on Jacob. And this is where you start to get a a glimmer, a, a glimpse at how the brothers have finally changed. They know this is going to kill their father and they don't want to go with it. They don't want to do it. What did they not mind doing when they did this to Joseph? They did not mind whatever the consequences were for their father. Right? That, wasn't, that wasn't in their thinking or it was very much part of their thinking. Let's hurt our father as much as we possibly could. Right? There is a change that's taken place. There is a, uh, there is a difference that is, that is present here in, in Judah's life and you can see it coming out in the way that he is trying to plead this. Right? We, we need to get death off the menu. We need to get that off of, the, off of an option here. And, and, and let's just put all of us in the same spot. Right? We are all in this together at this point in time. If one of us is going to be a slave, all of us is going to be a slave, and likely it's because we don't want to deal with the consequences of this. So just, just put us all, uh, all, all in slavery here. Uh, verse 17, uh, Joseph will have none of this. Okay, Joseph will have none of this. Joseph reiterates what the steward had reiterated, which makes me think this is what Ju- Joseph has wanted from the very beginning. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave, but as for you, Go up in peace to your father. What is it that Joseph has been angling for? What is, it, what is the setup that Joseph has been working towards? Benjamin is guilty. Benjamin becomes my slave. The rest of you go back in peace. Could they possibly go back in peace? No. No, they couldn't possibly go back in peace. There's a, there's a bit of irony, I, I think, that, that Joseph is, is putting back in there. Part of it's simply a statement of you're free. You, you know, there's, no, no, there's no charges. There's no, uh, there's no conviction over you. Uh, but could you really go back in peace? You, you really could not. Right? So, so Joseph has, has, has brought this setup as far as he could possibly bring it. Right? Uh, he has orchestrated uh, Benjamin's apparent guilt. Uh, he has orchestrated uh, the brothers uh, needing to, to come back. Uh, he has orchestrated uh, a, a situation in which uh, Jacob will be immensely harmed if this situation uh, unfolds the way that it looks like it's going to unfold. Uh, Joseph has engineered all of this, and he's carrying it out perfectly. Uh, this leads us to verses 18 down through verse 34, uh, where we move beyond the crisis to, to a glimpse of seeing the change, right? The, the change that has taken place. 40, chapter 45 deals with the brothers and where the brothers are at. We'll see where Joseph is at in verse 45. This is why the, you can't say the reconciliation is complete here in 45, uh, in verse 44, in chapter 44 rather. Uh, but you could at least say, you can at least understand where the brothers are at at this point in time. From, chapter, from verses 18 down to verse 34, this is all Judas talking. This is the, this, uh, one of the commentators pointed out that this is, the, this is the longest continuous speech in the book of Genesis. Of all the speeches that are present, of all the times that you see individuals talking, this is the longest time that one individual continues on for this length of time with being utterly unbroken. As Judah goes through this speech... Um, there's a lot of time that is spent rehearsing past interactions. Uh, Judah is spending a lot of time basically going back to the first in, uh, this first uh, uh, interaction that we had with you, Joseph. Then what happened when we got back to, to, to Canaan and what we had to talk about with our father and now where we at, at at this point in time. right? So he's spending a lot of time reiterating. But as he does this, there's, there's, two, there's two things that, that pop out uh, as being things that have changed in the brother's life as you work your way uh, through this passage. Uh, this is the closest thing that I can get to, to some sort of application for us here today. Uh, again, I'm squeamish over the, how this reconciliation works. Could you suggest that the way Joseph is going about this is the way that you as a believer should reconcile with someone else? 
I don't think that you can. I really, I would not suggest this for any of you to try this out, right? This is, this is an absolutely awful idea. But as this situation unfolds, you do see things that mark what reconciliation does look like. You do see what that happens, looks like here. And it comes out in jo- Judah's speech particularly. The first thing that you see is, is an acknowledgement, a strong sense of their guilt. There's, there's acknowledgement that takes place. Uh, this started back in chapter 42, I think. If you look back in chapter 42 and you look in verse 22, I've hinted at this several times here. Uh, the brothers are seemingly, uh, they feel guilty an awful lot, right? It's obvious to the brothers as they work through the situation uh, that things are, are, are going the way that they are going because of what they have done. If you look in chapter 42 and verse um, 22, Reuben starts this off. In 22, Reuben answered them saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. This was the very first interaction that the brothers had with, with Joseph. This is after uh, Simeon is being, uh, is being confined. Uh, this, is, this is as things are, are starting to look bad. And the very first thing that comes to Reuben's mind is what? We're paying for what we've done. And we know what we've done. Right, he's not having, to, he's not having to, to beat around the bush there. Joseph hears everything that is going on as well because he understands them. Uh, and he is very clear that, you, that what is happening to us right now is due to what we did to Joseph way back when. Right? This is coming due to us. Uh, verse 28, end of verse 28, as they're opening up their sacks and they're finding their money in their sacks, end of verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? Uh, They see sovereign justice taking place. They see divine justice taking place. Uh, We are guilty. We have done this to our brother, and we are paying the consequence uh, of our brother. If you look now in verse 20, back in chapter 44. Chapter 44, verse 20. uh, Judah is rehearsing. Uh, Let me me just read here in verse 18. Uh, Judah approached him, this is Joseph, and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in your Lord's ear. And do not be angry with your servants, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. In verse 20, uh, Reuben introduces a slight change in the dialogue that we have experienced up until this point. Up until this point, every time in Genesis where we have seen the brothers talking to Joseph, trying to describe what happened to Joseph, they have simply left it very vague and they have said things like, he is no more. Right? They're kind of trying to skirt around the issue, simply, he just doesn't exist. Here, what does Judah say in verse 20? Now his brother is dead. His brother is dead. This is the first time that, that Judah or any of the brothers comes out and explicitly says, Joseph is dead. That older brother is dead. And Benjamin is the only one that is left. And I think there is something significant in that. In the fact that they are able to bring themselves to admit what has likely happened to Joseph. All right? And if it has likely happened to Joseph, who's responsible for that? Why is Joseph dead? It's his brothers. And who specifically has engineered that situation? It was Judah. Judah was the one that looked at his brothers and said, let's sell him. 
right? Which introduced a, a chain of reactions that should have left in Joseph being dead. They report him to his father is dead, and likely he is dead. And I think at this point in time, when you see Judah being able to admit this, you see Judah being willing to to admit this to Joseph. He's not making a confession to Joseph because he doesn't know who Joseph is. But I think it reflects what he has been thinking internally. My, my, My brother is dead. Benjamin's older brother is dead, and it's because of what we did. Reuben knew it. The brothers knew it, and now Judah is willing to admit this is what has happened. And if he's willing to admit this is what has happened, then he's willing to admit his own part in this, right? What we have done has been wrong. What we have done has been guilty at so many different levels, and we are bearing the brunt of this. We are bearing uh, the guilt of this. And this could be part of why Judah has offered himself in this situation to begin with. When you look at the the fact that Judah was willing to offer up himself as as surety for Benjamin, you have to wonder why. Why is it? Why is Judah so willing? Could it be because he wants to be the leader, or he is being looked at as the leader and realizes this is the only way that we can get him there? We didn't talk about this last week, but is it because Judah has experienced his own loss? Judah has lost his own sons. His own sons due to wickedness. Does Judah understand more of Jacob's grief, more of Jacob's Jacob's heartbreak than ever before, having lost his own sons? He knows what the cost of that looks like. Is that what makes him willing? Is it his own guilt? Realizing that I am the one that has put Joseph in that situation. I engineered that. I led in that effort. And now I have to do something to make atonement for it. We don't know. Right? We don't know what's moving uh, Judah to this position. We don't know what's caused the change in the brothers' hearts any more than we don't know why Joseph is in the spot that he's in in chapter 45. Right? The, the text is silent on that. But you look at the situation and you have to wonder, are they feeling the guilt? They are at very least reaching that acknowledgement of that. Right? What we have done has been wrong. What we have done uh, has put us in a, in a spot where we are guilty and we deserve whatever is coming to us at this point in time. The second thing that you see is a, is a mark of repentance. Okay, So there's an acknowledgement of what we have done. Uh, there is a sense of our guilt because of what we have done. But there's also a sense of repentance that comes out in what, Joseph, in what Judah is trying to say here. And, and it, it comes out in a relationship with their father. Um, if, you look, um, if you look here in verse... Um, Well, you look at his father's statement in verse 27. Your servant, my father, said to us, this is, this is Judah relaying Jacob's words, and these are fairly accurate. Um, Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, that's Rachel, and the one went out for me, and, and I said, surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I came to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will bring the gray hair of your, of our, of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Judah's concern for his father is is paramount here. 
Uh, What's curious is that it's not even a concern that's laid towards Benjamin. Uh, Judah, Judah seemingly doesn't say anything about, I don't want to see this happen to Benjamin. Right? It has nothing to do with Benjamin. What does it have everything to do with? It has everything to do with Jacob. It has everything to do with, with, with my father here. Much of what the brothers have been frustrated with, when you, when you look back at the situation that, that got Joseph into slavery to begin with, was the way that, that Jacob treated Joseph. Right? He, he walks around in this, in this special coat. He gets sent on, on administrative missions and then comes back bearing mischief. Uh, he tells these dreams that are, uh, that are, that are outlandish, that, that, that put the rest of us in, in subjection to him. And you don't, you don't say anything to, to stop him in, in any way in, in whatsoever. It, it, is, it is Jacob's favoritism that provokes much of that situation. Right? That has now been transferred from Joseph to Benjamin, and arguably it's been amplified. Joseph at least got sent out on an administrative task. Benjamin is chained, right? Benjamin is, is kept with the father night and day, and we won't send him anywhere for fear that we lose that last son, right? So the favoritism that, that arguably helped set off much of this situation hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, it's probably gotten worse, because now it is, it is so focused on Benjamin. It is, it, it is amplified in its, in its, to, to a heightened degree. And you have to think that the brothers still notice that, don't they? They're still, they're still, they're still sons of their father. They're still individuals like the rest of us that crave a good relationship with their father that frankly is never going to happen because he loves the sons of Rachel more than he loves the rest of these boys. Something can happen to the rest of these boys, and that's, that's, that's not good. But if something happens to Benjamin, this will kill me. Right? He didn't say that. He didn't talk that way about Simeon when Simeon got put in jail, right? But Benjamin, Benjamin is something else entirely. And so it is reasonable to assume that, that under these circumstances, Judah could respond exactly the same way to Benjamin as he responded to Joseph. But what is he doing instead? He's not, he's not going to allow that to happen one more time. Even though the pain is still real, even, still, even though the harmfulness of, of Jacob's favoritism is still present, nothing's gone away there, right? Uh, Ju- Judah is willing to look past that. Judah has made peace with that in some capacity and is willing, despite that, to say, I will stand as surety for Benjamin. Just let that boy go home, right? Because I cannot stand the possibility of what is going to happen if my father if I go back to my father and Benjamin is not present with us here. This is not Judah acting in any way that, that benefits him. You could look at the situation with Joseph and you could say, well, well, Judah enriched himself, didn't he? Right, 30 pieces of silver, right? That came, to, that came to all the boys. Everyone got a piece of that. Here, is there any benefit to Judah's behavior? There's not. There's nothing in it for him. He's not working any angles. All of this is selfless. All of this is geared solely for the benefit of his father who loves Benjamin more than he loves him. And Judah knows it, right? But Judah has reached a point in his life when his care for his father exceeds anything else at this point in time, right? And this is where you see the repentance that is taking place. Arguably, much of what the brothers did to Joseph was out of spite for their father. It was to make his father pay for what he had done. In addition to getting rid of Joseph, the dreamer, at the same time. Here, Judah repents, right? Judah says, I don't want to see this happen to my father. I have seen this happen once before. This cannot happen again. 
Jacob will die if Benjamin doesn't come back home. And I can't stand to see that. I can't watch that. I cannot let that happen again. There is an acknowledgement over his guilt. He knows what happened the first time. He knows how guilty he is for what happened the first time. And there is a sense of repentance that has taken place. I will not allow for this to happen again. I will not go down this road again, even though the circumstances are exactly the same. Nothing has changed. The, the same favoritism still exists. The same strained relationship still exists. Uh, the same sense of, of loss still exists. But, Jacob, but Judah will not allow for this to take place. And this is where you see the brothers half of this reconciliation, right? This is where you begin to see, the, again, the answer to those questions. What, can you trust these brothers? Can you trust that they are, have somehow changed from what they used to be before to what they are now? And the answer is yes, at least for Judah's sake, right? Because Judah is at least willing to say, I will not allow a repeat of what happened last time. What I did last time was wrong. Right? He has no reason to confess this to Joseph right? because he doesn't know who Joseph is. But you can tell by his words, you can tell by his actions, you can tell by what he is willing to do and how he is trying to navigate this situation that he knows exactly what he has done and he does not wish to take that, have that happen again. And this is a template for reconciliation. Again, the circumstances, the, the engineering of the situation, I can't recommend as, as a form of reconciliation. But the elements that are present here are required for reconciliation. Could you imagine Joseph and his brothers trying to reconcile and this didn't happen? The brothers not being guilty at all over what they did to Joseph. Can you have a relationship in the, under those circumstances? I don't think so. Could you have a relationship with brothers that you think would sell you out again? I don't think so, right? But what has happened in the brothers has been healthy. What has happened in the brothers has been good. They have reached a spot where they need to reach. The only question is in chapter 45, where's Joseph, right? Where is, where is Joseph at in that situation? And unfortunately, we have to wait for that, right? But what you see here in Judah, what you see here in Judah, what you see here in the lives of these brothers is a good template for reconciliation. There has to be acknowledgement of sin. There has to be an acknowledgement of where we have transgressed and there has to be repentance, right? Without those, reconciliation is impossible, right? And this is what we see with the brothers. Uh, this is what reconciliation must look like, even if the engineered circumstances are not good and not recommended at all, right? So this is what we see here. And we see, again, we see God's hand. He is moving. He is guiding. He is leading these brothers to where they need to be to enable this family to stay alive in the land of Canaan, right? So God's hand is, is present here again. Well, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we see here. Uh, Father, even with the, uh, the questions that we may have, uh, Father, even with the, uh, the, the motives that we may, we may wonder about with these men, uh, Father, we thank you for what we see in their lives as they, as they move to a place where uh, they, they understand their own guilt. Uh, they understand uh, what it is they have done, uh, and they have reached a point of repentance. Uh, Father, we, I understand that. We understand that as believers is what reconciliation must look like. When we look at the response of a believer to you, uh, Father, as we listen to the gospel, as, as we hear what is being uh, proclaimed to us there in the gospel, uh, we understand that we have, to, we have to recognize our own guilt and, we ha and there has to be repentance that takes place. Father, and so this reconciliation that we see here, Father, it matches with what we see in other places of Scripture. And I thank you for that. Father, I pray that it helps us as we, as we work through our own situations, as we work through difficult circumstances that we understand and see what is required in order to make that happen. Father, I thank you most of all that we see your hand so strong in this passage. As, as you move, 
as you lead, as you guide, as you push in many ways, getting these men to where they need to be. Father, it is simply so that you can maintain them alive. And so that you can continue to, to carry out your promises to these individuals that you have made a covenant with. And Father, that is gracious beyond all accounting, Father, that you would do that to individuals who are unworthy, uh, to individuals who are, who are sinful, to individuals who are selfish, to individuals who are so, uh, so dysfunctional and so fragmented, Father, in, in their behavior. Uh, Father, to see that is something that encourages us, Father, to know that we ourselves, we have been party to that as well in the gospel, Father, to be, to be drawn near to you despite our own sin, despite our own uh, deficiencies, despite our own uh, thoughts of self-sufficiency that are, that are inadequate. So, Father, give us grace as we, as we think through these passages, Father, to see ourselves here, to see your hand here, Father, and to praise you for your grace and for your sovereignty in all these situations. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.